This is To Hear Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, a Learn and Sing production. Paul McDermott, and this is a podcast about great Irish albums. It's named after a My Bloody Valentine song. If you go to Adlern and Sing on Twitter or paulmcdermott.ie forward slash podcast, you'll find links to episode notes and lots of further information on all the albums we've covered so far. If you're new to the podcast, there's lots to go back and discover. Episodes on The Stunning, The Fat Lady Sings, The Jimmy Cake, The Harvest Ministers, Catchers, Nina Hines, Boa Morte, Jubilee All-Stars, The Fatima Mansions, Whipping Boy, loads more. I'd ask that if you've enjoyed any episode to date, then please consider subscribing, liking and sharing. And if you stay until the end of this episode, you'll hear a short preview of the next one. Now, Sean O'Hagan has featured once before on this podcast. On episode 20, I presented my documentary Iron Fist in Velvet Glove, the story of Micro Disney. Micro Disney split up in 1988 and Sean would go on to release his debut album High Lamas on Demon Records in 1990. Using the name of that album for his new band, the High Lamas would release their debut album Santa Barbara in 1992 and follow it up a few months later with the mini-album Apricots. Don't come here looking for blissed-out noisecapes, wrote Stuart McConey in The Enemy. He continued, Apricots is a sophisticated yet manic dash through rocks palatial halls, round by the Beach Boys, down past Steely Dan, pausing for a quick look in at Big Star and the Rolling Stones before going out through a door marked 1969. Giddy and Gay came next in 1984. Now here's a short outtake from the aforementioned Micro Disney documentary. I've edited this down from a longer conversation about the early days of the High Lamas. So here, in just over two minutes, Sean explains how we get from his debut solo album to 1994's Gideon Gay. I don't know what to do really, so I'm, I start driving a van with Friends of the Earth, I think. Friends of the Earth, yeah. And yeah, and I'm writing songs, but I'm not really that kind of... I have no idea. Directionless? Yeah, I'm totally directionless. Because I haven't got a voice. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I've never written a lyric and I haven't got a voice. Are you are you trying to write lyrics? <sighs> yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm doing some demos. But the weird things, people are, I remember Kirsty McCall go and gets in touch and asks, I think I joined about his, her band. Yeah, yeah. Um, a few people sort of say, maybe you should be producing various people. You know, maybe you should move to America, Sean, and your future's there. You know, I don't know, all sorts of stuff on that. But, you know, I just tried to start writing songs and then demoing. And, of course, it's weird going in and you're not you're not with your pal, it's just you. And you just realise how difficult it is. And uh, so, wilderness. Wilderness years. Three, four years. You know, wilderness years. Mm. Absolutely. Not, and not, you know, not able to do it really you put out the record with your own name and the thing i start to sort of 
think oh, it's got to be my own voice. I find, and the only way I can find my voice is through Alex Chilton. So again, I get very back close to Alex Chilton. The first record I want it to sound like an Alex solo record. A demon hear it, love it, want to put it out. So that's the beginning, really. And yeah. then that becomes yeah. like mm. the Lamas. Mm. And I, I kind of, I don't know why or how, but then I really begin to kind of form a musical kind of vision in my head. And that's the that's the real beginning. And so the real, real beginning is, is Santa Barbara, really. Yeah. And beginning to understand how to arrange and produce. Santa Barbara, by the way, becomes huge in France. Yeah. And we have this sort of career in France, weird career in France. I meet Tim Gain, Stereolab, and, and for some reason I'm dragged right back to Brian Wilson. And that's the beginning of Gideon Gay. Checking in, checking out is a lilting pop-wise cut from Gideon Gay, wrote Keith Cameron in June 1995, awarding the song Single of the Week in The Enemy. He continued, neatly encompassing most of what's great about the band, perfect harmonies, undemonstrative orchestration, an upful melody counterpointing O'Hagan's dryly melancholic vocals, an altogether special out-of-body pop experience. It becomes the biggest hit, not actually about summer. Hawaii came next. Now, I first met Sean in May 1996 when the High Lamas played Cork on the Hawaii tour. I was working with Frontline Promotions at the time and we promoted that gig. And I also got to interview Sean earlier in the day for my radio show that at the time was on Cork Campus Radio. That was the first of many interviews over the years for various radio programmes and documentaries. Sean has always been very generous with his time and always extremely welcoming to me. I love chatting to him about music. Now, some people may claim that Gideon Gay or Cold and Bouncy or Snowbug, take your pick really, is the better album, but I'd have to respectfully disagree. Hawaii is the long player that best exemplifies Sean's mastery of lush orchestral pop. This 77-minute opus is extremely ambitious. It's cinematic. It recalls composers like Burt Bacharach, Nino Rota, Ennio Marconi. It recalled Brian Wilson and it made it comfortable to admit an affection for the post-Pet Sound string of Beach Boys albums. Hawaii plays out like one long piece of instrumental symphonic pop interspersed with more traditional lyrical pop songs. It felt out of time in 1996, coming as it did between grunge and Britpop. It still sounds completely fresh today. Whenever I play Hawaii, I'm transported back to Sean's back garden sometime in the late 90s. We're sitting drinking tea it's a gorgeous summer's day in London. Wind chimes on a tree near us are blowing gently, creating beautiful sounds that will serve as a natural atmospheric sound bed to the conversation I'm recording. I'm interviewing Sean Forget That Monster Off The Stage, a radio documentary I'm producing about Five Go Down To The Sea and Finbar Donnelly. As Sean is chatting, I realise that I'm drinking tea from his own Hawaii mug. I quickly turn into a giddy child and forget the next question I was just about to ask. For a few moments, I think about distracting him and slipping the mug into my bag. I could do it. 
He wouldn't see me. I could really do this. I'd chicken out. Somewhere in that anecdote is an allegory for the undiminishing power of undisputed classic albums and their ability to affect us and transport us to different times and places. Hawaii is that kind of album for me. So here we go to Here Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, episode 37, Hawaii by the High Lamas. It's my great pleasure to welcome Sean O'Hagan. Sean, I was thinking of you a while ago. I just heard that Killian Murphy has been nominated for um, an Oscar. I was thinking of uh, Sea of Mirrors last year, the Coral album, how he came good in the end for that. Without much without much work, which reflects really well on him. What, what a wonderful human being he might be. He must be. I said to Pat Kiernan, we did a good day's work there, Pat. <laughs> and it was very quick. It was within an hour I was able to email you back and say, yeah, he'll that do it. Pat made a call to Killian and Killian was basically back straight away saying, of course, yes, I'll do that. It was amazing. So when I actually spoke to the Coral the next day, I said, I've got Killian Murphy for you. They were just, they were like falling off there. They were going, what? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. When those things come together, it's just, uh, it's fortuitous and it's reflective of something very good in in, 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 in Cork. Absolutely. Come here, are you excited about the um, release in a few weeks' time of um, Hey Panda? Yes, I am. I mean... I normally don't get excited about record releases because, you know, there's been a few of them over the years. And, you know, apart from they obviously mean a lot to some people, but they don't really mean a lot in in the great in the great scheme of things in the world. And, you know, you kind of um, you become accustomed to that. What you do is you set yourself up for disappointment. You know, this is what this is what, you know, we we you know, any, any of us who work in the kind of creative medium we set ourselves up for constantly for disappointment but this time there's a very good feeling and it's um a culmination of several things it's been a while since the last record and also it's just a very very different sound and it's for me it's you know kind of forcing myself into a departure and also a kind of i'm at the stage i'm at the age and the stage where you do everything on your own terms and Success is somebody getting in touch and saying, I love the new single. It's wonderful. That's success. Success isn't anything to do with statistics or numbers. It's to do, you know, and um, that is, uh, that's where I am. And so, yeah, I'm really, really happy for people to um, share it in, in a couple of weeks time. Very happy. Well, congratulations on the album, Sean. I'm loving it so far. Thank um, you so much. Fall off the mountain, <laughs> yoga goat, hungriest man. These are these are some of the ones that kind of jumped out at me. Mm. But uh, yeah, I'm loving it, Sean. So uh, congratulations and enjoy the next few weeks now as you jump back on the kind of treadmill of doing interviews yeah. and what have you. And I'm glad you've given me this time, Sean. I know we planned this about a year ago, but um, I said to you, listen, let's get this done before you go completely mm. into promo mode for sure. um, Hey Panda. Yeah. Sean, we were talking about this, I think it was when we were down in yeah. Kilkenny. That was the summer before last, I'd I say, it Sean. Was, yeah. Wasn't Charlie Francis with us as well? He wasn't was, he? yeah, yeah. 
Charlie had produced Hawaii. Absolutely. Yeah, he was the other man. There were two of us in the chair, the two, and Charlie was the other guy. Amazing. Um, Charlie was with me on that journey all the way in a big, big way. Uh, he really put more than a shift in. And I feel as though he owns every bit of that record as as I do. So, yeah, getting on the stage with Charlie and Charlie's an amazing musician who's it actually it's really weird because back then, you know, he was a he's a bass player and a guitar player and, you know, a fine keyboard player. And and over the years, over those the last whatever, 30 years or so, he's really educated himself and he's a plays Bach now and he's a flugelhorn player and all sorts of things. So having him in Kilkenny, I said, Charlie, I, I want to put a sort of a small version of, of a band together. Uh, and uh, he was perfect. And it was really, really lovely having him. May do it again. But that's when we actually, um, you said, listen, we need to we need to have this conversation. Can I take you back further, Sean? Because I said I'd play, you know, a couple of seconds of this now, Sean, just to get chatting, because I know this is a very important gig in the whole, like, genesis of this story, okay? So... recognize that Sean, that's don't that's, you? that's that's the garage jesus that's ye with Arthur i thought Lee. it was that's the but, garage um i thought it was uh and i just thought but which what is it it's not it's not um it's not the encore say um that was a snippet of the daily planet there was a, a love bootleg that did the rounds yeah. of um the 92 gig i think the 92 gig was with shack wasn't it yeah and then the 94 gig then with yourselves. Music from, you know, Anne Morgan. Love for Sale. We did stuff from Love for Sale. Wow. Yeah. Very bizarre. When I tell people that, yeah, we 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 were love for two, two or three nights, a rehearsal, a gig. And for me, the next day at the Albert Hall. That was the Creation Records 10th anniversary bash. On oh, my God. Yeah. I was a very stressful time for me. But you said that was enough of that, that, you know, one or two gigs was enough that there's no way you could have uh, envisaged going out on tour with that stuff, that like one or two days was enough. No, he, he, Arthur Lee, look, I mean, God bless him, he's dead now. And um, it was a, an immense pleasure and a privilege. But he was talking about suing people who he believed the gig was recorded and I'm going to sue everybody and. Well, the gig was recorded, Sean, as it turns out. <laughs> Everybody's going to get sued. And then at the um, Creation Records night, the, this following night, so Creation were there and they were just having a really great time. I guess they were just basically having a party. And they said, Sean, you can look after Arthur. So I was with Arthur Lee. But then Arthur Lee was taken off by people who I won't mention. And he came back completely strung out. So we rehearsed and we did a sound check and then when he played, he was like off his head. And I played, I can't remember what I played. I played one. You did Alone Again, Alone Again All. I played that. And Signed DC, I think, Sean, was the and opening. I played Signed DC. And then I was supposed to play one more song. And 
I started playing it and Mick Head was there saying, you're not playing it right. And I, at which stage I had, I had had enough and I just took my guitar off and I said, Mick, you can play it. I'm, I'm, I'm going home. And I went home. Now, you'll know why I've brought this up, Sean, because Jeremy Pierce was at was the, at show. the show. Yeah. You pick up the story, so, Sean. Yeah, he was employed by Sony at, at the time. And he had um, uh, an imprint called LRD, the Licensed Repertoire Division, which was very successful at the time because within uh, LRD was Creation, which was the most successful record company uh, in, in like in 93, 94 in the UK. Also had things like nude, so that that's uh, suede. So he he was a very successful record exec, and he could basically do what he wanted. And he absolutely loved the High Lamas. Basically, he turned up for that Arthur Lee show. I think it was Martin Carr from the Boo Radley said, "You need to come down to this. There's two things happening. You're going to see the love. You're going to see Arthur Lee in love, and you're going to see the High Lamas." And he just went bananas and the next day he was they're saying i was at the gig and and i think we were so we were about to possibly sign to jerry moss's new label which is called almo so jerry moss who may who created a and m with herb albert of course herb albert yeah then he left the business and then he decided that herb and jerry were get, getting back together and they were going to make a new label and they wanted to sign the high llamas is it true, Sean, can I interrupt you there? Is it true that at some stage they put posters around Dublin looking for you because yeah, yeah. because they couldn't find you and you were supposed to be over in Dublin or something? Well, what happened was they said you got a sign and 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 at this stage there was a few things about the whole thing which I didn't think was right because they had just set up and they hadn't released anything. They had, and I was just like, I'm not sure about this. And at this stage, Sony were making an offer and Warner Brothers were making an offer and everybody was basically ringing up after like years of being totally ignored. Everybody yeah. was ringing up. Dave Robinson was ringing up, everybody. And um, so it was this weekend and it was my auntie Mary and Uncle Sean's Golden Jubilee, I think 50 years marriage. And there was a very special evening in, in Laytown outside Drogheda. So off I went to Drogheda for this big, you know, O'Hagan, Murray get together. And the fellas from um, Alma were calling me saying, are you going to sign this? And I said, well, no, I haven't decided yet. Turns out they had already, they promised, they had already told Jerry Moss that it was all signed and it was all done. The deal was done. And um, Jerry Moss was like saying, I thought you said the deal was done. And it, they just said, OK. So they knew I was in Ireland. So they um, they 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 posted Central Dublin and East Dulwich, where I live, saying, get in touch. That's just crazy stuff. It is Sean. crazy. Yeah, totally crazy. But Sean, like, you know your stuff. Like, I mean, to have to have Jerry Moss and uh, Herb Albert's new label, mm. you know, postering Dublin looking for you. That must have just been nutty stuff. All it was nuts. My my cousins were saying, Sean, what's going on? You're everywhere. And I went, oh, this is a strange story. Um, but no, I really trusted Jeremy. And, you know, Jeremy was wonderful. Your name came up, actually, in a previous episode, Sean, of the podcast, 
the great Dublin band, the Jubilee All-Stars, yeah. they were signed to LRD through a little label in Dublin called Lakota. Oh, yeah. And uh, they were saying that, you know, as part of that whole thing, because of the connection with Jeremy, that your name had been in the mix to actually produce them. But that then once Jeremy moved, you know, moved the mm. label mm. over to V2, V2, obviously that never came to pass because you were no longer label mates. Yeah, I mean, I don't. Yeah, I remember that really well. And, um, you know, that would have been the first time anybody would have asked me to do any kind of production. Yeah, and no, I remember that. So yeah, so yeah, we had this really nice little few years on Sony with 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 Jeremy, and you know they reissued Gideon Gay, and they said go and make go and make the next album, whatever you want it to be. Now the weird thing is, is the the guy who signed who when Jeremy Pierce went to the head of Sony, the head of Sony heard checking in, checking out, and said. Oh my God, we've got this, uh, we've got this American country, West Coast, FM. This is amazing and this is redefining music. said go and do what you want they should have realized when i did um a b-side i did a b-side called i think it was it was called crop duster yeah that's right which was just total morricone it's the b-side of checking in so they said go and do a b-side so i did crop duster which is just like which i wrote really quickly i wrote in a do you know dave clifford that's Dave from Vox magazine. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, I was overseeing Dave. I wrote it in Dave Clifford's house in Intercore. I just sat down on the piano and wrote this. Um, it's really weird when I think of it. So many Irish connections there, because I wrote it in, in Dublin. And I wrote it about and my uncle, uh, a, a guy called Canos Amani, who was this remarkable man from Dundalk. He was... Um, an engineer, a civil engineer, and a very, very regarded, highly regarded civil engineer in Ireland. And he was telling me a whole bunch of stories. He was telling me the, the history of the London Underground. And this story was in my head. And so I kind of wrote Crop Duster. And it's basically about this American who who came and pioneered the uh, London Underground in, 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 in London, you know, but he was an American.
so crop duster was made which was just completely nothing not 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 west coast um fm at all it's you know just basically cinematic mad cinematic music so but jeremy was like fine you know this is what you do and then then that basically set up hawaii really they just said go and make Hawaii. now i know when i was making hawaii i think jeremy was like what the hell is going on here i think he probably thought what was and when we delivered the record which was actually made very very quickly it was made in six weeks but it could have been could have been made in a year you know but made really really quickly because yeah. uh, i had everything organized i had everything written everything when we presented it the full opus which was like a really odd thing first of all double albums were like unheard of then albums that didn't have starts and be songs that didn't have starts and beginnings was unheard of remember we're just coming out of um sub pop we're coming out of grunge you know blur are on the horizon somewhere the beginning of brit pop but america is basically been run by Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and whatever. And um, so making records where, 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 where the major influences are Nina Rota, Brian Wilson, Charlie Mingus, uh, uh, Burt Bacharach, Alice Coltrane, was just like, what, what? And again, we forget, this is, you know, early nineties. Like Brian Wilson is part of the lexicon. He wasn't part of the lexicon back then. You remember that really well. We talked about that before, Sean, the fact that reissue culture as we know it today wasn't a thing then in the early 90s. So you couldn't get any of those records, you know, from Pet Sounds up to the mid 70s unless you found them on secondhand vinyl. Really. And not only that, but the people who ran the music industry, if you went in and said, well, you know, um, Brian Wilson's a big influence, they would have gone, Why? Yeah, sure, I love it. Yeah, but why? They would have been really, really confused. They would have understood if you'd have said Nick Drake or if you'd said Velvets, they'd have understood that. But Brian Wilson back then was almost like an embarrassment, you know? I suppose there was still a huge stigma attached to any type of mental illness, really, Sean, wasn't there? It was that, and it was also the fact that most people had forgotten... But remember, so so the records that were made, you know, like like you know, Pet Sounds, Smiley Smile, Smile, Wild Honey, through to you know, through Friends and all that lot. Those records didn't sell, and they were known by a, a small coterie of kind of music journalists and, and and fans. But most people, the most recent experience people had with the Beach Boys was was Fifty Golden Greats in 1975, when they basically you know, had hits again in 1975, 76, 77. And so as far as people were concerned, they were the surf band, you know. It was the cars and girls and surf, Absolutely. wasn't it? And so when you talked about Brian Wilson in, in, in even in the 90s, people just, that's what people still remembered. Yeah. Really, really weird. Sean, was the length of the album, was it influenced by the fact that you could get that much music onto a single CD. Did the format have any kind of influence over that, do you think? Just kind of pushing all I can Didn't on this? Didn't even think about that. Didn't even know it was going to be a double album. Just had all this stuff. And it was like, I have, I'm going to record everything. I have it all. I'm not going to leave anything off. Did that come from a place, Sean, of I mightn't get this opportunity again? Totally, so totally. Massive insecurity. 
might not get this opportunity again at last for the first, oh my God, as somebody who completely believes in me, um, you know, the, the band, you know, John, Johnny, Rob, Johnny Bennett, Marcus, we were so able at the time. We were so able. We were able to kind of, I was able to sort of articulate ideas to, I mean, you know, most drummers wouldn't be able, wouldn't have been able to actually understand the idea of underhitting the drums and underhitting the drums and actually kind of where, where everything, everything's going to be driven by, by percussion and then we'll put drums on. And in fact, we'll put drums on at last. We're going to put drums on last. And Marcus playing piano, the, you know, I would sit down and I'd play the parts and Marcus would absolutely replicate every nuance. And I would, and I'd say, yeah, because I know you're brilliant. I know how good you are, Marcus. But if you kind of stray into massive ability, we'll lose something. It's got to feel slightly stunted. Those things, just incredible. A bunch of brass players who were just, who we knew in South London, we were very, very close to. And they were amazing players. They played with people like Carla Blay, you know, and but they were very, very ready for something different. And again, they were like, we don't get usually get to play music like this because we were, we were giving them, you know, small band orchestral parts. And they said, this is not what we normally do. Those things, you know, we had the team, so to speak, you know, and Charlie, of course, right there, you know, very much in the chair with me. Um, and I didn't think we'd get a chance again. And so it, I was absolutely, everything's going to get recorded. And every song had a personality and every song had uh, a story and a root. And you, it was, you know, it all made perfect sense to me. Yeah, it made absolute perfect sense to me. So the songs were recorded. And then after we recorded <clears throat> the songs, we created the segues. That was afterwards. The little instrumentals came afterwards, so. Yeah, those segues were all, you know, a few weeks of in the studio, listening back to stuff and cutting stuff up and remixing stuff and, um, you know, recording very, very quickly. And just, so we had this thing of, so I want to record these songs, which are kind of little opuses and there's the, the perfections and and you know absolutely admit this i don't think i was i don't think i was pushing any dials here i think i was just basically capturing stuff that other people had ignored for years you know i go and you know people who are generous will say oh yeah but you know you it was definitely your sound and you know it's different whatever so that 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 you know that was people being generous but at the end of the kind of perfection of the recording process we had this imperfection two weeks where we were just doing really quick, mad things. And then we had a re another record of, of, of improvisations and then we just listened to them and they were, they were the segues.
did Jeremy from the label think when you finally presented him with a 70 plus minute album, Sean? Well, I know he he was silent for a while, I have to say. He was silent for a while. And um, but it, within, I think over a gestation period of six months, he kept coming back and, and then eventually he just said, you've made the most extraordinary record it's like it's 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 i don't know what nobody's made a record like this and he kind of did totally acknowledge the fact that you know his instinct was right and that he was you know making he was on you know he was participating in something i hope he thought very special so much so that when he was asked by richard branson to set up v2 records so he fell out a little bit with the the the, the Sony CBS Sony, and um, Richard Branson was wanted to get back into business, and he basically said, "If you've had your time with Sony, I'm going to give you a label." And so I remember being in the studio doing a B side. Oh, I was in the studio recording. Um, what's the cover? Of- I can't. What's the cover we did for the Smiths? Frankly, frankly, Mr. Shankly. For Les Rocontibles, the uh, the French magazine. Yeah, I was in the studio recording that, and I got a call from Jeremy Pierce and said, "Sean, I'm going to leave NRD Rossoni, and I've been asked by Richard Branson to set up a label, and I'm only going to do it if you come with me." And I said, "Yeah, of course I will." But hang on there, Sean. Hang on there now a second. You had been on Virgin in the 80s. This is V2, but... Oh, I know. Did you not pause for thought and kind of go, ooh, hang on a minute no, now? No, no because, it, because Jeremy was like this very special person who, like, had basically... I mean, he basically gave us 30 grand and said, make a film for Nomads. And we made the most ridiculous film. You know, do it, you know just do what you want you know, paid for us to go to America, so many things, you know, and, um, you know, I just, I really felt I owed this guy massively. And, you know, I said, no, of course I will. And he said, but we're also going to, hopefully, and you could help me with this sign Mercury Rev. And I said, great, fantastic. And he said, we haven't done that yet. You might be able to help there if you can make a call. So I did actually, I did call Jonathan for Mercury Rev. So I thought, yeah. well, this is going to be a good label. This is a great start, you know. Yeah. And um, <laughs> it was double bubble because, you know, we got signed by Sony and then that deal should have run for two albums firm. But Jeremy basically said, uh, now we're moving on. And we got signed again. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's some more money. Um, and um, so that's, that was fine. Now, Sean, I went back through my old diary and I found um, the 6th of March, 96. Okay, so this is a few months before Hawaii came out. Stereolab and Tortoise played together in Cork. And Noel Kilbride was the tour manager. When they walked into Soundcheck, they'd have seen a Hylamas poster up behind the bar because you were due to play at the end of May once the album was out. Okay. Okay. 
And Noel said to me, you know, he, he saw the poster and he said, Paul, have you heard Hawaii yet? You know, like, have you heard it yet? And I said, no, we haven't been sent it yet, you know. And I can remember he reached into his bag. He gave me a promo of it. And I can remember we all sat around listening to Hawaii after Stereolab and Tortoise had sound checked, you know, and uh, really excited then about Year Gig. Year Gig then came the end of May. The night of that gig, Sean, what I remember, the one clear memory I have of that gig, in the middle of one song, Noel Kilbride, who again was back tour managing with G, he uh, shuffled out onto the stage. He was crouched down, kneeling down in front of you as you were playing a particular song. And I have a clear memory of him flicking one of the pickup switches for you because you were doing something very elaborate with your guitar at the time. Jesus, this is a whole other level of intricate detail going on here. Oh my God, I have no memory of that. Oh my God. Oh, oh, Grassy. We called him Grassy. I thought, whatever that man's being paid, it's yeah. not enough. Oh, wonderful Grassy. Yeah. I, my favourite, my favourite tour manager ever. Yeah. What a wonderful man. You got to go to the States with this record, Sean. Yeah, it was massively. Um, People were very, very excited when we went there. And it was like, you know, every th- I mean, things were reasonably exciting for us in the UK, but America is where, where people really were were excited. And it's always been the case. It's always they've always kept um, an interest in, in, in the llamas and what I do. So, yeah, yeah we were. Um, New York, especially there were, you know, V2 was set up. And they were very excited in in New York. And yeah, Jonathan, Mercury Revel were always around. They were very much part of the picture. Abbo, Stephen Abbott, he ran, he he ran um he had a label on um V2. Can't remember what it was called, but he, he was very successful. He had big, big hits. Yeah, Abbo was in America anyway, and Kate Hyman, who's an amazing woman because she ran Z. So then she moved, you know, she'd done various things, but now she was V2. And so Don Was was on the scene as well, which was just like incredible when Don Was was on the scene. Had you actually met him back in the Micro Disney days? Didn't you say that he was on the cards to to possibly produce something? No, it wasn't possible. It was lined up. If we stayed together, he was going to do the next record and he came to see us. We spent a couple of days with him, which was um, would have been amazing. You got to meet him again in the States, so... Yeah. I just remember being in, like, New York and just playing shows and just people being utterly transfixed because we were going on stage with small string sections and playing all sorts of... We were really mixing it up. And people, again, people were just like, what? Never... You know, I mean, obviously Stereo Lab were around and Stereo Lab were sort of very much into their kind of they were moving from kind of the kraut thing into a sort of more of a jazz thing you know we were like exotica here and then sort of kind of early 60s doo-wop here and strings and harmonies and you know obvious stuff yeah nobody was doing it back then it was just like the guitar was the, the 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 you know the stomp pedal and the guitar were very 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 much in 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 um, the forefront, and um, 
playing reasonably quiet gigs, but with incredible detail, arrangement detail was just like, now, after that stuff did change very quickly. And, you know, obviously, you know, people like Sophie and Stevens were, were a few years were, were around, weren't they? Magnetic fields, you know, there was a, there was a, an emergence of that sort of, I think people finally got tired of the, 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 the one, the one dimensional thing and realized that there was um, a, a kind of, there was mileage in listening to different records and playing with different, you know, and people were going on stage with small brass sections and, and then, of course, you know, like there was that the whole apples and stereo, and neutral milk cartel, and all those guys. So, you know, maybe maybe we have something to do with all that. You know, maybe maybe sort of maybe we move things along a little bit. The cover, Sean Kev Hopper, Kev, of course, the great artist, um, and of course, a member of Stump in the eighties. Of course, yeah, he said that he can remember you saying to him. The theme of this cover, I want it to be Pilgrim Fathers and Wooden Huts. That was his cue. For him, he said, the songs deal with artifice and gently laugh at cosy readings of history without trying to be clever. So he said the imagery, he said it's sort of naive. It's got an odd postmodern overtones. And he said that he, you know, from his point of view as the artist, he said he thinks it suits the actual songs. And he said those black and white columns on the sleeve, he said they're based on uh, the Burren columns, the French artist Daniel Burren. Mm. They're in the Palais Royal in Paris. He said he has memories of um, of painting dozens of those columns and cutting them out and pasting them onto the actual cover. That's correct, yeah. Well, well I mean, again, these are all... It, I'm glad you got that down because, again, I wouldn't have remembered any of that. It, it's amazing that... I mean, it's what what strikes me is that there was actually a thought and a theme. We obviously had that conversation, and yeah, I kind of had this 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 idea that okay, so there was this sort of um, obsession, the beginning of you know, exotica and all that lot, where people were obsessed with the sixties and obsessed with there was a nostalgia for the kind of the what if you know people were walking around with 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 with, with airline bags and wearing yellow sunglasses and things like that you know and i kind of never wanted to get caught in that sort of thing as you know when we were on stage we never we never dressed at like that did we? we always dressed like um guys who were signing on you know always um and um and because i was listening to sort of things like um stephen foster and you know, Charles Ives and Delius and things like that. And I found that just as fascinating as Martin Denny. Yeah. So, yeah, this kind of, uh, this pioneering kind of, the, the imagery of pioneers and the idea that we're in, we're Europeans, but here's, I'm making music, I'm making music which is a kind of homage to a lot of America and a little bit of, you know, like, Italy and you know French cinema and that but mainly the US but it's almost like capturing the first time you know the first time the Europeans um, tried to inhabit America and the way they did it and it just made perfect sense to me you know um, you know right down to the song called a chorus going pilgrim fathers like to wonder 
you know, <laughs> you know, I no idea and how and why and you know, just bizarre what was going on in my head at the time. Absolutely. And I had been in Paris a few weeks ago and the columns struck, I was struck by them. I walked around them for ages and they stayed in my mind. So, and, and of course it wasn't going to be just, it was three things. It was this kind of um, naive painting of, of uh, the, the new America as, as the Europeans saw it. It was the French, um, these the uh, conceptual art. And then this kind of Disney-esque Hawaii, you know. And Sean, just to tell you again, Tony Lines, who designed that, he said uh, Sean wanted it curved. He wanted the Hawaii curved. He said, I want it to look like it's on a cereal box, but I want it to have a sunset on it. Those were your instructions to Tony. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow, well, amazing... Um, um, and the, what 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 kind of uh, uh, um, I hope in all of those encounters I was polite. I was probably <laughs> enthusiastic because it sounds like I was like you know a little bit um, obsessive and not slightly um, instructive. So I I just hope you know you know people you know I'm friends with all those people. They're all still very very close to me and dear in my life. Sean, I'm wondering, like, you know, when, you know, when you were in London in, in the 80s and then into the 1990s, Sean, were you just like digging for records the whole time, Sean? Like, like you talk about all of these different um, influences and jazz and mm. Italian composers and like, you know, like, were you just like digging for records and soaking up this stuff? And, you know, who was telling you about all of this stuff, Sean? Tim Gain was very important. Tim was really important. Tim was, um, so yeah, I've always have people with me who are very important. Carl was very important in the eighties, massively important. And Tim was very important in the nineties. And we used to spend an awful lot of time together talking about music and talking about influences and talking about where stuff comes from. And, you know, people know about no, Tim and, uh, uh, for, you know, Stereo Lab and, you know, oh yeah, Stereo Lab, Krautrock, and then eventually, Dots and loops, but you know we'd sit down. We would talk about Kevin Ayers or Kurtag, the the piano player, the avant-garde piano player, um, the Zombies. Uh, and I suppose Sean, just as you said about Brian Wilson in the nineties, people in the early nineties weren't talking about Odyssey and Oracle. Sure, they weren't. No, they weren't. No, no, no. Um, it, again, this. You know, it, it's extraordinary. I mean, even the music journalists weren't. I mean, they were like, I can't say this, over say this, but this 
you know, this is something, you know, a, a, you know, a, a theme, and it goes all right back to Micro Disney, and that is being the guys who embarrass some of the journalists. Because I remember in Micro Disney when we we turned up for interviews, you know, I I used to wear sort of um, windsheeters zipped up, and that might be cool now, but back then. You look if you if you turned up like that because I was obviously you know there was people were like um, it, was, it was I don't know it was goth or post new romantic I can't remember what it was but I remember this guy because I because I looked like a guy in a betting shop and the guy was saying why do you, he said why do you dress the way you do in other words we you know you're an indie band and we're and this is a, the melody maker and I think the guy had um, you know a 1940s suit on with his with a cropped haircut and Morrissey look or something like that and I said I said no you're the one that looks weird and um and he was I think he, he was a bit upset by that but it was like took that all the way through into the High Lamas and this thing of there are parts of music that embarrass people and said so this is because there's stuff that's this is the cool stuff and this you know this is what it's about and um, you kind of, well, actually, this isn't that, this is pretty good. You know, like, like actually, there was some great French pop music. Boris uh, um, Vian was really, really interesting, you know. Um, and they say, well, yeah, we know Serge Gainsbourg. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, but Serge Gainsbourg was great, but he, he adored Boris Vian. You should listen to Boris Vian. And there's this kind of embarrassment, like, of wait a minute you're straying outside the the the, the rules of cool do, do you see what i mean yeah absolutely it's a strange thing it has to be done yeah always has to be done you know you're always looking ahead sean i know you know i know even getting you to come back and talk about hawaii is uh you know i i feel very uh honored because i know once hawaii was done and dusted you were thinking about cold and bouncy and yeah. you were suddenly being influenced by a lot of electronica and yeah, yeah. you were thinking ahead straight away weren't you yeah because there was so much really amazing because it was early 90s electronic music early 90s was absolutely fantastic especially what was happening in Austria and Germany and parts of France. You know, so you had Fenez, you had Marcus Pop, you had, you know, Mouse and Mars, you had uh, in America, you had Le Bradford. Um, yeah. You, you know. The sounds from Chicago. Yeah. I mean, there were so many really, really great records being made. Basic Channel in Berlin, you know. And, you know, people go on about, you know, like like the seventies and you know the the crowd rock scene. Yeah, of course it was very important, very influential. But the that scene in the early nineties was the emergence of digital electronic music, the art 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 electronic music. And obviously, you know, like in America, the one thing on my big regret. This is my big regret. I didn't get. I didn't quite jump into american 90s hip-hop and it was such a great time and i didn't absorb it then i was absorbing the european electronic stuff um and bits of trance and that and, and i loved that i absolutely loved that that whole scene so somehow i wanted to sort of grab that and and, and bring it into you know into what was happening and you know there was great like at france the source label you know, do you remember um, 
super 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 uh, super discount, isn't it? Super discount, incredible. Etienne, uh, Etienne de Crisi. That's it. Yeah, yeah. I can see the record, Sean. A big yellow record. Yeah, and that stuff all gave eventually gave up gave you know to um, obviously Air and then Daft Punk, obviously. You know. Yeah, you know, absolutely. That whole scene. Sean, you got there in the end with the kind of uh, with the American hip hop, though, kind of, didn't you? Totally, yeah. And come here, tell me though, I'm trying to understand why Radom calls. Mm. You know, was a Sean O'Hagan record, and and Hey Panda is a is a Halama's record. And in your head, how do you explain that? Well, when I made the Sean O'Hagan record, I didn't know whether I was going to make another record or not. I I, I didn't know. I never know. Um, and I did want to make a record under my name again and dispatch with the fear because I thought having the High Llamas was, there was always a bit of fear that I had to actually make a great record. I mean, and, and, you know, like Tallahoe way is one of like, this is, this is something, but my two favorite High Llamas records are Snowbug and Tallahoe way. They're my two favorites. Snowbug, the the last record on V two, uh, late late nineties, and then Talhami Way, the the about twenty uh, twenty eleven, so kind of ten years after Snowbug, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I and I and I thought there, I I I couldn't go any further with that. whatever it was creating with that, um, I could didn't feel as though I could go forward with it. So that's why here come the rattling trees. I said I can't make another record like that. So that's why I said I'm not going to make. I have to somehow make a record a different way. And so that's why I wrote wrote a stage play, and then decided to write music on the off the back of a stage play. And that's because also I'd been listening to so much Sondheim as well. I mean, Sondheim became very 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 important to me while making Radom. I just said, this is the point where I'm going to really start playing with electronic music again. So I'd write ballads and then there would be electronic interruption in, in the ballads. And it kind of, it made perfect sense to me. And, you know, I think the most successful song, I mean, there's loads, of, I mean, the, the Better Lull Bear, which is instrumental and, and McArdle Brown, where, where Cahal sang. And, you know, and it was so amazing to actually say okay wow so i'm making i'm writing the songs i want to write i'm putting that i'm bringing back that electronic production value and carl singing yeah wow it's just like this this couldn't get better you know oh mccardle brown riding in the lift before the sun Riding in the lift before the sun Oh, McArdle Brown Here to bring a shine where there is none Wheel away the shreds of days now done Oh, McArdle Brown See the city day begin So that kind of, even though nobody heard the record and it didn't really have any any kind of a profile, it certainly gave me um, a little bit of confidence. So I thought, 
I can. So I, I think I could make a record as the High Llamas and not fear. And um, now between that and making the record, I, I met Ben Garrett. Ben Garrett is Friars. Friars, yeah. He was a very, very important man to me. He was a young man. He's now 34 or whatever. And he got me, he asked me to make his record God Melodies. And I made the record and did the arrangements and played. And I learned so much working with him. And this guy works with Mark Ronson, Lily Allen, Skepta, all sorts of people, you know, Dave. So his his contemporary knowledge and his contemporary abilities and participation are, are, are well, you know, documented. Did that make you feel young, Sean? I tell you one very funny one. I went into his studio and, and he said, let's start playing stuff. I said, Ben, turn it down, mate. I can't eat. you got to turn it down. And he was like, oh, OK. I said, Ben, if you, when you hear, listen things loud, it's great fun, but you can't hear detail. Turn it down. Then you can hear the detail. You were schooling each other, Sean. We were, yeah. But he taught me so much about, and I just learned, relearned the whole programming thing. And I learned an awful lot about um, R&B rhythm. And I loved it. And and the music I was listening to that I loved, you know, Khalid, No Name, Mount Kimby, Tyler, just, you know, just incredible. Shmino, Pivot, all of those people. It was, for me, it was like Daniel Caesar even, Frank Ocean, you know. It was like this. There's a new, really exciting pop music, and I kept going around saying to people of my age, "Stop talking about the past and the golden age because you might just be in the golden age." Yeah. And and listen up because we yeah. might be in the golden age, you know. Yeah. And um and that, so I said I'm definitely gonna when the next record is going to be um I'm gonna I'm gonna let go and I'm gonna occupy this, and then even when. Bonnie Prince Billy got involved and sent me two sets of lyrics and we were talking about gospel music. I said, I'm going to, I said, okay, I'll write them like the tunes like gospel. So I'm going to tune my voice and I'm going to, it's going to be, you know, we're going to be, I'm going to be putting the subs in. He was like, yes, Sean. He said, I've always wanted to do that, but I never knew how to. So at every stage, you know, it, it was just so, so joyful. Ray Morris, I made Ray Morris's record, who's married to Friars and uh, to Ben, and she's involved. And Liv was involved big time. Yeah. And Liv, Liv, my daughter, used to play me so much stuff. She just keep coming out and saying, and I'd be, I say, what's that? What's that? What's that? And it was like incredible. And I'm just, it, it, I feel very young with this music and I hope it doesn't feel embarrassing like an old 64 year old guy making records making contemporary pop records it's still um, unmistakably a High Lamas yeah. record too though yeah. Sean I'm glad I'm glad to hear yeah. that because the, the chord movement is such that you know you'll always recognise the vo the chord voicings always
Sean, Hawaii is kind of um, it's kind of bookended by these two extraordinary as 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 we talked earlier about Arthur Lee and love the High Lamas backing Arthur Lee in the garage. At the other end, out the other side of the US promo tour, you had that extraordinary meeting where you ended up with the Beach Boys and you ended up kind of playing this bizarre gig in Cincinnati. Yeah. It's extraordinary to think that of that period, yeah. you have Arthur Lee and Love kickstarting the whole mm-hmm. thing, I suppose, in one way, because mm-hmm. that's the gig where Jeremy from the label saw you. Out the other end of it, yeah. Richard Branson trying to get a Beach Boys album off the ground again. And you get roped into that story. Absolutely. Richard Branson. Yeah, Richard Branson befriending Bruce Johnson and Bruce Johnson hearing Hawaii and thinking, oh, my God, and then I'm playing it. To Brian and saying we can get this these people we can get this guy we can make a record with, with these guys you know and then but we have to get Brian back in the band and I was sent to America my job was to get Brian back into the band and then to set up a record and so yeah I was sent on on mini tour a little mini tour with them and um yeah most extraordinary thing did you ever think all those years earlier in Cork when yourself and Cahill were getting into pet sounds that you'd end up in that situation, Sean? No, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, I just I remember being in Lotebeg Green in Cork, sitting down listening to pet sounds, Carl and me being in Lotebeg, and just listening to tapes of Smile and 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 pet sounds, and just kind of just going, what is what's going on there? What's going on there? Is 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 that a bottleneck guitar or what? What you know? What is going on there? Are the strings? There? No, but I mean the idea. So even now, it's very hard to think it because it happened in the nineties and those things. When I tell people about, I never tell people the full thing because you know I'm afraid I might love basically. But I think you know a few of them. A few of them, yeah. Yeah. Mojo have asked me to write write it up completely, and I said not, 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 not for not now. Not any time soon. There will be a time. And Van Dyke Parks told me you did the right thing. Van Dyke Parks said, you are, you did the right thing, Sean. They are litigious people. And uh, no, it's just the most extraordinary. And now it it feels like um, a film. It feels like a movie, you know. And I can see it really, really well. I can see the whole thing being in Cincinnati and the big, the baseball stadium, the football stadium, and being in the hotel with them, having meetings, being oh just just crazy i mean it's very filmic you said before to me that there was one point where you kind of said to yourself i have to get out of here i i have to just get out of here this is just insane yeah Yeah, i did um yeah i started to get really scared about the whole thing and i remember it was i think i think the bosnia war was going on and I remember ringing Jeremy and saying, "Jeremy, I need to come home. I, I don't. I'd, I'd prefer to be in Bosnia than here." You know. <laughs> and this was like, and this was in the the, um, the Beverly Hills Hotel, you know. Crazy stuff. You mentioned Van Dyke Parks there, Sean. Um, like you said to him in a lovely interview there. Or I think it was around the time of 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 Tallahomey Way. You said to Van Dyke that. Um, you're always trying to advance yourself as a writer, that you always remain a listener and uh, you always try not to deny the strangeness. Mm. And I think when I'm listening to Hey Panda, 
I was reminded of that conversation that you had with Van Dyke. Oh, that's nice. Oh, that's lovely. Sean, will you pick a song from Hawaii? Okay. And maybe um, set it up for me. Maybe tell me something about it. And um, and we'll go out on your choice from Hawaii. Okay. I think ill-fitting suits because it kind of, I think it does it kind of this, it, it, it's central because the song is, it's a sort of, it's a happy song, but it's it's played with, a, it's a slow tempo. And the the happiness is underscored with a, a sadness. And, you know, I always think the finest songs are happy, sad songs. Uh, all the elements are there. The vocals are there, the brass is there, and the strings are there. Uh, it starts with an echo of a piano. And I remember saying to Charlie, I kind of want, I want people to be completely confused by this piano. I want this piano, it could have been um, like a ghost of a piano in New York in 1900. And for it to literally just fade into echo. And you're just thinking, wait a minute, what's going on here? And then for, you know, and then for the kind of, I guess you know when the song kicks in with the with, with the uh, the back and with, with with the percussion and the two pianos, two upright pianos doubled, and these backing vocals, which are like again they're they're they're, they're almost they're slightly nostalgic, but then quite sad, and lyrically you know it's um, you know community groups in their ill-fitting suits. It's, I do believe that it was on the pioneering theme, you know. And uh, I mean, obviously, uh, Pilgrim Fathers Like to Wonder is one song, but Ilfic Suits was very much about the Mayflower as well. And the extraordinary kind of Nina Rota like horns on the chorus, you know, so you have these kind of bizarre, shaking, strange brass it could be new orleans it could be nina rota and then they cut and then these this just just this back rack like string chord emerges you know and and then that gives way to to to, to vibraphones and that could be anything that could be mancini could be you know all the things i was trying to do on the record seem to be present on that on that song sean you told me in kilkenny that um Talks were ongoing about um, reissuing yeah. those V two albums, Hawaii included. Um, I'm just wondering, are there yep. has yep. has there been any progress there, Sean? They are about to be cut. It's they're about to be. Yep, yeah, there are. They are. It's totally happening. I doubt if it will be the end of this year, but it might be the beginning of twenty five. Amazing. But they are. So Gideon Gay and Hawaii are the first two. They are. They are about to be mastered and we're gathering the um, artwork. Will you sit in on the mastering, Sean? Will I sit in on the mastering? Yeah, I mean, I don't really, yeah, we've got the masters from Abbey Road, which I think are absolutely fine. We might just, I might just push the level a little bit because I was very conservative. So no, I'm not gonna push the level on these things. But the thing is, it's double albums. You can't push the level that much because you've got so many songs and you have to, you have to get the grooves on, on, on the vinyl. I'm talking to Charlie about it. So he might advise me. Charlie's uh, still working and like he's a mastering engineer as well as anything else now. So he's uh, he's definitely, you know, 
the man to speak to. So yeah, no, it's very, very much, uh, it's very much happening. Yeah, brilliant. I'm thrilled. And the weird thing is, you you, you are the first. It's 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 prescient, you know. You're the first. I think you're the first in years to actually talk about Hawaii. You're Paul. You're like, I don't think I've ever done it. But strangely, I was contacted yesterday by an American documentary maker. They might want to make some films for Sky about outliers and outriders in art. There you go. And one of the things I want to do is Hawaii. It's so weird. So that means, Sean, there's going to be a third one. So in the next few days, there'll be a third. These things always happen in three. Oh, yeah. My podcast, yeah, yeah. a documentary yeah. for Sky. There'll be something else now, Sean. <laughs> wow, imagine that. Imagine that. I just want to say, listen, enjoy the next few weeks now with Hey Panda. Yeah, it'll be good fun. Hopefully we'll see you over here for a gig in the not too distant future. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what it will look like. It might be me and two singers and... Uh, a, a, a box and a keyboard player I don't know but it'll be something you know listen Sean I really appreciate you taking the time absolutely thank you Paul Sloan see you soon man bye Shane.
And my thanks again to Sean O'Hagan. If you go to paulmcdermott.ie forward slash podcast, you'll find the episode notes and further information and some old press cuttings about the Hylamas. Hey Panda, the great new album by the Hylamas is out soon on Drag City Records. Now here's a preview of the next episode. You got a London well, band with an Australian songwriter, Irish singer, and a fucking French name, and we're getting gold albums in Italy. Do you know what I mean? It's like it just doesn't make sense. The baritone thing as well in Italy is quite a, a sort of a cultural nostalgic thing, you know, which makes people feel safe. That's what I've been told yeah. by a lot of Italian women anyway. So don't tell me. That you get sick of living To Hear Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, Episode 38, Cousteau. On the last good day of the year On the last good day of the year On the last good day of the year There you go, Episode 38, will be out in a few weeks' time. The theme music, it's called Irish Rhapsody Redux. It's by Mark Healy, and it's his reworking of a recording of the New Light Symphony Orchestra's version of Victor Herbert's Irish Rhapsody. Until the next episode, goodbye.